Heavenly Father, we have tasted and seen that you are good. Your name is good. Your, your deeds are good. You are good. And so we ask, Father, today that you would help us to enter into this new year with complete confidence in you. We'll confess, Lord, that our confidence in ourselves is not strong, but we have full confidence in you. We know, Father, that you have already done your part by sending your Son. We don't have a plan B, Lord. Our salvation, our sanctification is all wrapped up in the work of Jesus Christ, the finished work of Jesus Christ, who said on the cross, it is finished. And so in the power of the blood of Jesus Christ, we come before you today confident in your grace, grateful for your mercies that are new every morning, especially this morning. And we pray, Lord, if there's something you want us to learn today that will empower us to live for you this year, we will not miss it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. So grateful for my friend, Dr. Randy Hatchett, who uh, preached for me last weekend. I got a chance to hear that sermon, and something he said in that sermon sparked my, my interest and attention when he said, you know, for those of us who fail, it is good for us to remember that we actually found God's goodness, that we have encountered the presence of God in Christ, and so we celebrate that together, and, and it's good to come together on this new year. I wonder if you have made resolutions for this year. It seems like whether we write them down or not every year, we we have these promises that we make to ourselves, these commitments. This is the way this year is going to be different from last year. And if you make resolutions or you ever have, you're in good company. For instance, the great literary giant, uh, Dr. Samuel Johnson, back in 1738, had this written in his diary as uh, his commitment for the year. Oh, Lord, enable me to redeem the time which I have spent in sloth. Now, we have his diaries, and 18 years later, he said almost exactly the same thing. In fact, every year, at the start of the year, he said, Lord, help me to redeem the time. I need to redeem the time. And then finally, looking back 37 years later in 1775, this is what he, he wrote. When I look back upon resolution of improvement and amendments which have year after year been made and broken, why... Do I yet try and resolve again? His answer, I try because reformation is necessary and despair is criminal. Maybe you, like me, awakened a couple of days ago and said, this is the year. This is the year. This is the year I'm going to be a better father. I'm going to be a better husband. I'm going to get a Fitbit. I don't have one yet, but everybody else has one, so I, I know I need one. And I'm just, this is going to be the, I'm going to eat right. I'm going to exercise well. I'm going to be disciplined. I'm going to use my time well. I'm just, this is going to be the year. And then a day before that, I remember looking back at the year and thinking about, well, there were a lot of great things in this year. And then there were some challenges in this past year and promises I made that I didn't keep. And in the middle of that, we may wonder, is it really possible 
to become new? Is transformation possible? One of the memory verses we learned in fighter verses last year was this one which said that the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. And every time I read that, I think, Lord, do it now. Change us, transform us. This is what discipleship is about, we said in 2014. We said we're going to do it in community together, 2015, in hopes that 2016 we would have an impact on our city. That because we are the people of God on mission in this place, God would so transform us that we would become agents of transformation. And if you, like me, ever wonder, is it possible for us to really become new? I have good news for us. It turns out that though our love for God is sometimes failing and inconstant, as you sang a few moments ago, His love never fails It is constant. Here's good news for a new year. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Would you open your Bibles with me? 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, Paul is pastoral. He's writing to a church that he loves, a church in which he spent some time, invested love and energy and life in that church, and they had problems. Uh, That's 1 Corinthians. They had doctrinal, uh, theological uh, practical problems in their membership, conflict and challenges and, and divisiveness. And, in, and then in chapter, uh, in the second letter to the Corinthians, Paul is pastoral. He recognizes the inevitability of their suffering and also the inevitability of God's power. And in chapter 5, verse 17, I think you know this verse at least. Let's stand together and hear the word of the Lord together as God speaks to us in the reading of His word. Paul says, therefore... If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to Himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though... God, we're making His appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For He says, in the time of my favor I heard you. In the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Paul knew something about transformation because he had experienced it. He was, after all, Saul who persecuted the Christians, who pursued them, who dogged them, dogged their steps, trying to take their lives away. And then he met Christ on the road to Damascus, and that bright light changed him from the outside in, from the inside out. He became Paul, the proclaimer of the gospel, and he established churches across the world. And one of those churches was in Corinth in in ancient Greece. And it was a, a place with many, many challenges. To live out the gospel in that city was a great challenge. And so Paul taught them for a season. Then he wrote these letters and And in this letter, he just reminds us that it is actually possible for us to become 
new. We can't be um, forever young, as Bob Dylan uh, sang, as uh, Rod Stewart modified. We may shop at forever 21, but we will not be forever 21. But the words he uses here remind us that even though we're not forever young, we are forever new. And by new, he means that the old has passed away and all has become new. And as he describes this, he envisions that the very same God who created you, who who knit the amino acids and put together the molecules that made you become, who who formed you in your mother's womb, who, who saw you when you were not yet born, that very same God wants to remake us in the image of Jesus Christ. He not only desires to do it, but he actually possesses the power to accomplish it. If we would receive it, there is a way for the old to pass away and all things to become new. And if you ask me how, I answer you with two simple words. In Christ. In Christ, the old has passed away. He says in verse 17, and immediately we begin to wonder how is it possible for the old to pass away? We would like for the old to pass away. As one poet put it, how I wish there were some place called the land of beginning again where all our mistakes and all our heartaches and all our poor selfish griefs could be dropped like a shabby old coat at the door never to be put on again we want to believe there is a place like that but but like Samuel Johnson we look back at the end of a year and we say wait a minute I didn't fulfill my promises my story is a story not of all my promises kept but of many of my promises broken and in that kind of world it would be easy to enter into despair and to lose hope but but Paul says in Christ the old has passed away and and it needs to pass away like like the we're on a constant reclamation project in my closet and part of it is some things have got to go I'm never going to wear the Calvin Klein jeans again. It's not even a good thought. They need to go, right? To make room for the new. The old has to go. Just so the food that was wonderful on New Year's Day and the, uh, the leftovers that were good yesterday, they need to go. The old has to go for the new to come. So what is old in our lives that has to go away? And how can it possibly B, well, he reminds us this is God's work. It is God who was in Christ. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. Exactly how to do it. Verse 21, he made him who knew no sin, who had no sin, the new NIV says, to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God had a plan of substitutionary atonement whereby Christ took our place. I mean, there are a lot of things that we would love to have left in 2015. For me, for instance, the two different jury summonses that I put off late last year have now come to fruition. Over the holidays, I called in February. I'm going to serve uh, jury duty not once, but twice. Who knew? There was Harris County and also Houston, I guess. And so I, I thought they were just one, and I was kind of putting it off, and now I've got to do it. And I remembered the last time I did jury duty, I took a book with me, A Tale of Two Cities, and I read Charles Dickens' work, because I thought that's a good work to read in a courtroom. I mean, after all, Charles, Dar- Charles Darnay's in a lot of trouble, and, and, uh, and with the good work of Sidney Carton, the attorney, uh, he is set free, and he's so free that he goes back 
to France so that he can celebrate freedom with his wife and his new baby, except it's the time of the French Revolution. And Charles Darnay is um, imprisoned and sentenced to the guillotine. But there is, after all, this good attorney, Sidney Carton, who looks a lot like Charles Darnay. And he goes and he takes Charles Darnay's place so Charles can be married and raise his children. It's, it's actually a battle, literally a battle, but he, he convinces him and he takes his place and he substitutes his life for the life of his friend. That, that's the story. He, Jesus knew no sin. Jesus claimed that in John 8, 44 in Hebrews chapter 4. Uh, he was tempted in all ways as we are yet without sin. He was sinless and yet he had to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. A part of our story is substitutionary atonement. God taking away the old, the past. There is a place called the land of beginning again. In baptism, we, we celebrate that, don't we? We're saying, I, I was old, but I've become new. I was dead, but I've come to life. In the Lord's Supper, we celebrate this new life that we have found in Christ. And the hard part is not whether or not God can get rid of the old. It turns out he is, he is very adept at that. M- maybe for you as well, certainly for, for me. And I know for Martin Luther, the hard part was believing that God could forgive him because he couldn't forgive himself. He had, after all, a good friend, though, named Johann von Staupitz. I, I heard this um, from Alistair Begg this week, that Staupitz said to him, Martin, you believe that God could forgive the Apostle Paul's sins, don't you? Martin Luther said, yes, I believe that. And you believe he died for Peter's sins. Yes, I do. Well, then you must believe that he also died for Martin Luther's sins. Christ died for the sins of the world. He was reconciling the world to himself. This is is good news. But the best news is you're part of that world. And when Christ died, he died for you and for me. I hear it in the poem of John Donne, one of my favorite poets of a different century, where in his A A Hymn to God, Our Father, he confesses, God, will you forgive that sin where I begun, which is my sin, though it were done before? Wilt thou forgive that sin through which I run and do run still, though still I do deplore? When thou hast done, thou hast not done, for I have more. Wilt thou forgive that sin by which I have won others to sin? And made my sin their door? Wilt thou forgive that sin which I did shun a year or two, but wallowed in a score? When thou hast done, thou hast not done. For I have more. I have a sin of fear that when I have spun my last thread, I shall perish on the shore. Swear by thyself that at my death thy sun shall shine as he shines now and heretofore. And having done that, thou hast done. I fear no more. Is it possible for the old to go away? Yes. How? Where? Where is the the land of beginning again? In Christ. Because God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. In Christ, a new creation. The old has passed away. And in Christ, the new has come. What has become new in Christ? All things have become new. In fact, he he uses a word which says that in effect, not only have we become new, 
but we remain new. Where, where can you get a deal like that? Because all the new stuff from two days ago is suddenly lost its, its luster. The things that, that used to be our very favorites. My, my favorite suit was, was uh, consumed in part by my least favorite moth. And I can wear it no more. It once was new, but now it's, it's old. And everything in life, the, the physicists talk about entropy, how things tend over time to disintegrate. And our lives can do that if we're not careful. But Paul sees a, a different trajectory for the people of God that in fact we can be made new. What does it look like? Well, first of all, he says it's, it's like reconciliation. It's right relationship, being made right with God. And here is where I think we have reduced the gospel strictly to justification and sort of made it a juridical uh, sort of uh, um, statement by God, well, we've been forgiven and that's all of our salvation, except, of course, that's not all of our salvation. For instance, let's say when I serve on those two juries, and let's say those two people who are tried those days are actually innocent and they are actually found innocent, which would be a good thing if they are innocent, and the judge says to them, not guilty. They could not on that basis expect that he would have them over for dinner that night. All he said is, you're forgiven. He's not established any kind of particular relationship with them. There's nothing intimate about it. All he said is, you don't have to pay the penalty because you didn't do the crime. But what if, in our case, the Heavenly Father, knowing that we were guilty, says on the basis of Jesus Christ, imputing our sin to Him and His righteousness to us, you are forgiven. But more than that, He invites us to dinner. He invites us to the table on Him. And we dine on Him as a reminder that Christ didn't die on the cross just to take away the penalty of our sin, to take away the old, but also to bring the new, which is a new relationship, a new beginning, a new opportunity. Uh, the, the prophets talked about a new heart, that God would give us a new heart, that He would change the way we think. Paul says uh, later in Romans chapter 12 that we can be renewed by the, by the transformation. We can be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that God can make the way we think new so that the way we live becomes new. This is what it means to be reconciled to God, to be brought into relationship with Him. There is an intimacy in Christ that you and I will never finally exhaust. We will spend all of eternity learning more and more about who He is and what He has done for us. And it is to be made righteous so we might become... Look, look. God is not reconciled to us, but we are reconciled to God like a, a boat that is finally pulled into shore. God doesn't finally say, well, your sin's okay with me. What He says is, I will bring you to Myself so that I can eradicate your sin. We are reconciled to God and we are made righteous in him. And, and the thing is, it's not that we just have righteousness, our sporadic, sputtering, personal righteousness. No, it's that we become the righteousness of God. This is transformation. So God changes us. One of my favorite quotes from last year, Eugene Peterson, simply says, the more we grow in Christ, the, the more we think about God's righteousness and the less we think about our own. That would be a sign that we have been made righteous. This is what it means to become new, to be right with God, to enter into a new year, not with trepidation, but with confidence that, that whether or not we are always able to keep our part, God will always do 
His part because He has in Christ. And when we believe that, that changes the way we look at the future. It changes our our spirit, not to Pollyanna optimism, but to genuine, authentic hope, confident expectation, believing that what God has for us is better than anything we have ever known before. Do you believe that? It's it's like um, Benjamin Reeves says, it's it's, it's like a, a, a boy who is promised a picnic by his father. And uh, he can't sleep that night, and so he awakens his dad during the night, and his dad says, go back to bed. We're going to be too tired to enjoy the picnic. But, but the, the boy goes to bed, but then he comes back again and wakes up his dad again, and his dad says, what is it? And he says, Dad, thank you for tomorrow. I'm looking forward to tomorrow. Let, let it be known on January the 3rd, 2016, that Dwayne Brooks, in view of what God has done for him in the 53 years prior, is thankful for tomorrow thankful for what God is about to do in our lives that God uh, has has purposed to do a new thing Isaiah chapter 43 that Jesus says from the throne in the end Revelation 21 verse 5 I am making everything new including by the way you and me old things are passed away All things are become new. And so Benjamin Reeves' quote that you've been looking at there sort of captures it. To to live expectantly means more than just believing in church doctrines. By the way, believing in doctrines is a good thing. And it means more than just trusting my life to God, which is also a good thing. Living expectantly is faith on tiptoe. Living expectantly means believing with God that life is worth living. Believing that our ministry together will never become routine. Believing that in God... In Christ, we will never experience the dullness of the daily. We live in the expectancy that in our lives, God will do a new thing that will transcend the past. And if you ask me how God is going to do this, I answer, in Christ, not only has God forgiven us, but he invites us to share in this meal a permanent reminder of all that He has done for us in Christ. Would you pray with me? And as we pray, the Scripture says we are to confess our sins to God, to examine ourselves. So can I give you just a moment of quietness to come clean? Father, you have said to us, come, let us reason together. For though your sins are scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Forgive our unbelief. Change our minds, Lord. And help us to believe your word when it says that if we have sinned, we have an advocate with the Father. And that if we confess our sins to you, you are faithful. You are so just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, make us the righteousness of God, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.